Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. Hey, here is my confession. I do not know a lot about microservice architectures. I'm currently working on a project that involves decomposing a monolithic application into separate parts and integrating those parts using Kafka and HTTP. Today, I talked to the co-author of the upcoming O'Reilly book, Reactive Systems Architecture, subtitled Designing and Implementing an Entire Distributed System. If you want to learn some of the hows and whys of building a distributed system, I think you'll enjoy this interview. The insights from this conversation are already helping me. Jan Mahachek. Oh, actually, is that how you pronounce your name? Is that good? Uh, It's Moflen (laughs) Mahachek. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I'll shut up. Uh, Jan Mahacek is the CTO of Cake Solutions and a distributed systems expert. How do you feel about being called an expert? Uh, the, the, I, it's false advertising entirely. Um, no idea if I would call myself expert. I've had my fingers burnt quite a few times. Um, so I'm not sure if that qualifies as the answer. I think that it qualifies like from where I'm sitting, you know, somebody who's made some mistakes um, isn't a great place to stop me from making them. Okay, I'll do my best <laughs> and make more mistakes. Um, so recently I've been trying to get up to speed on how to split up a monolithic app um, and uh, also just about how you might design a, a distributed system in, in general. And uh, my, my former colleague, uh, Pete, recommended I check out uh, your work. So, um why would I build a distributed system? Now, that's that's actually a killer question. Um, a lot of the times, so typical answer, typical answer is that people say, oh, well, we don't like this monolithic application because it's monolithic. That's the only reason. And by monolithic, I mean a thing where all the modules, all the code that, that makes up the application runs in one container. I'm using the word container in this most generic way. So, you know, maybe a Docker container, maybe a JVM or, or something, but like everything runs in this, in this one blob of code. And that doesn't actually mean that it doesn't scale, right? It's, it's, it's quite possible to think of multiple instances of this monolithic application, monolithic in the sense that it contains the thing that deals with orders and the thing that deals with, I don't know, generating emails and, and what have you. And But but it, it scales out, right? It runs on multiple computers and it talks to, I don't know, again, a scaled out database. Now, that might be okay for business, but clearly it's not really entirely satisfying for, for development. And soon enough, the two will meet and and business will say things like, well, guys, we need you to update the, the, the blah component, the thing that generates the, the emails that go out to our customers. And the development team says, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, we can do that. Tappity, tappity, tap. And then they say, yep, that's, that's all done. So when can we redeploy this entire thing? Now, that's where it's starting to get a bit ropey, right? It's like, you know, then the... the, the Product owners, the business will have questions like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, are you sure you haven't, like, everything else is fine, right? And uh, we, the programmers, say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't changed a single line of code in this other stuff. We've only changed the lines of code that make up the email sending service. And, and we deploy it, and then something breaks. Now, that's actually really unpleasant. So we say, oh, we don't want that. We realize that the, the entire system is made up of smaller components, and they have a different life cycle. So we want to break them up. So we want to have a service that does email sending. We want to have a service that does, I don't know, the uh, product management and uh, some sort of e-commerce component that takes payment. And and so we break it up. Now, when we do, we gain the flexibility of deploying these smaller components independently, but there's a price to pay, right? The, like we, we, the complexity of the application remains the same. And the fact that we've broken it up and we said, okay, yeah, this is now simpler. Well, the complexity hasn't gone away, that, that still stays. And we've just pushed it aside to the way in which these components talk to each other. So this brings me to like the first monumental mistake and yeah, I've made it. We said, oh, well, what we actually have now is a distributed monolith. 
What I mean by that is application that runs in multiple processes, multiple containers, if you like, but its components like need to talk to each other. So to display a web page, I need to talk to the product service. And I also need to talk to the discount service and the image service. And I need to get all three results before I can render out the page. And if one of these components fails, ah, well, that's tough. Doesn't work. So that is a particularly terrible example of a, of a distributed monolith. Essentially, what you've replaced is the in-process method calls and function calls with RPC. Now, you know, even when I say it out loud, it sounds pretty unpleasant. Who would want to do that? So, so clearly, well, clearly, um, this might not be the right thing to do, right? You have a monolithic application, you decide to break it out, but it needs, like, you need to take a step back. Our, the designers need to take a step back and say, is the fact that we now have a distributed application, which means that there are, time is not a constant, right? So we need to worry about time. We need to worry about unreliable network. We need to worry about network as such. These, these components need to be talking to each other. And because these components will now, each of them will get their own life, they need, we need to worry about versioning all of a sudden. So all that brings up this, this vast sort of blob of complexity that, uh, we need to solve. And you, you might have heard about this reactive application development thing. Have you? Yeah. Um, I, I feel. I'm not clear whether it's a just a, just a buzzword to be honest, like like a, a marketing term. I hear you. What what is what is reactive? So it has these four key components, and it centers around being message driven. So the the, the the components when they interact with each other, it's not a request followed followed by a fully baked response. It's a world where you know, uh, one of the components publishes a message and it says, okay, here's my, here's my favorite example. So we're building these e this e-commerce website and when we're designing the checkout process, we have this, this, this entire thing and we've integrated with payments, it, it, this all works. But each service, when it runs, it should emit messages. Uh, now, this, this is all sort of hand-wavy. You're not seeing me. Uh, live, but I'm waving hands. So you can imagine, you know, imagine the picture in all its horror. But you publish a message onto some message bus. So think Kafka, think Kinesis, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. A durable message. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So hang on to the word durable message. Now, each service, as it operates, it should emit as much information about its work as possible onto this, this message topic. Now, You've successfully implemented this. This this first version of the e-commerce website works. Now, because you, these services were emitting these events as they went along, it is now possible, retrospectively, this is the cool thing, it's now possible for someone to come along and say, you know what, I'm going to build a blackmailing service. <laughs> the blackmailing service is going to go through all the historical messages in this persistent message journal, and it's going to pick out the embarrassing orders that I've made. You wouldn't believe the stuff I buy on Amazon. Now, if we design a microservice architecture that way, so we are event-driven, each service publishes an event, the events are durable, it's possible later to construct another service that consumes these past and you know, future events and does more work, right? This, this is how we extend stuff. This is, the, this is the promise. Surely we can just add another service to our system and it now does more things. Now, that can only be, if you think about it, that can only be achieved if we have this historical record of stuff that happened, not just here's an entry in the database. That, that's, that's like a snapshot in time. You, you have stream of messages going from like message number one or zero, the beginning of time, all the way to today. Now, if you were to replay all the messages and write them to a database table, you'd get a snapshot in history. You'd get a snapshot of when I replayed all the messages, here's the state of the system. But as more messages come in, of course, this snapshot keeps changing. And so it's actually sometimes really useful to, to think of like a, even a database table or some sort of persistent store as a snapshot of this system at a particular point in time. But the life of it is expressed through these, through these messages. So now, just so I, I'm clear, 
you're saying, so you, de- you designed the e-commerce system as a standalone monolithic app. However, you make sure that you're emitting everything you're doing to some. You know what? That could be a good start. If you have a standard, if you have a monolithic application, you think I want to do microservices, emit stuff first and build the new stuff as a new microservice. Um, that's, there's a whole, whole bunch of value in that versus the usual, um, dare I say, enterprise initiative that says, let's take what we have and rewrite it. I have, I have yet to see one successful rewrite it from scratch. Um, it just never works. There, there is so much value and so much experience baked in existing code that rewriting it is almost always a disaster. But extending it is a good idea. Now, extending it, you don't want to add another monolithic bit onto it. So adding messaging, asynchronous messaging, which is another bit, another asynchronous non-blocking, another reactive buzzword, right? You don't want to, as part of processing of, I don't know, a, a request from a user, the last thing that the app should do is to wait and block on some sort of aisle because we are distributed after all. And this IO could be network. Now, who knows how long that might take? Sometimes even forever. Sometimes there's no result. And, you know, these TCP sockets time out after, oh, I don't know, 60 seconds. 60 seconds. There's no way on earth that a thread, this, this heavyweight thing, should be blocked for 60 seconds. So it needs to be asynchronous. Now, modern operating systems, I mean, the kernels of the modern, of modern operating systems have all these asynchronous primitives. So it's possible to say things like begin reading from a socket and like continue running this thread and then the OS will wake up some other thread and will say, okay, yes, I now have the data. Uh, here's your callback. I've given, I've read five kilobytes from the socket. Here, you deal with it. And then it's up to the application frameworks to manage it in some reasonable way for the for the application programmers. So you know I do a lot of Scala. So there's a whole bunch of asynchronous convenient asynchronous libraries, uh, you know, like Akka. Uh, Go obviously goes in a very similar way. I mean, I guess asynchronous could have a couple meanings, I guess. Like I, I could have a um like is it fire and forget or is it I'm I'm just not blocking but then you know the scheduler is going to return something like is every request returning like 204 or something <laughs> like I say save user and they're like okay we heard you but that's also a really 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 good question um if you can get away with fire and forget your system will be so much quicker and so much easier to write now a lot of our systems we the users wouldn't accept fire and forget so again, think about think of typical messaging. You send, uh, read from a or write to a socket or write to disk uh, or write to this persistent journal. Now, if you accept at most once delivery, so far and forget, um, what these components are telling you is well, we're going to do our best. Like you know, we'll try not to lose your message, uh, and that's probably okay for statistics. It's probably perfectly fine for health checks, monitoring, um, but it's not okay for, uh, I don't know, payments. This is where it gets a little, you know, a little more difficult. So if a component has taken money from, from your card, the thing that receives it really should receive it. Now, this is where it gets really complicated because distributed system, right? Now, okay, so you and I need to exchange information in a a guaranteed way. Well, what, what I can do is say, hey, Adam, so I have the payment for you and I can hang up or disconnect my computer. Now, from where I'm sitting, I, I'll hear nothing from you. Okay, 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 okay. But from where I'm sitting, I don't know if the message that was going to you got lost and you actually received it and you have it, or if you, or if the, you actually received the message, you began processing it, but then you crashed. So I should send it again. In, in both cases, or has, is it the case that I sent a message, it successfully got to you, you processed it, but then just as you were replying, my network went down, in which case you have it, but I don't know that. Mm-hmm. So I should, I, I'm going to send the message again to you. Now that means that you might get duplication. So you might hear the same message, message again. Now, 
there's nothing I can do about it. Because from my perspective, I haven't heard a confirmation from you. So I need to send it to you again. And you now need to do extra work to deduplicate. Now that's problematic. How do you do deduplication? Well, okay, um, you, get, you, you hash the message, right? So you compute some SHA-256 of it, you keep it in memory. Yeah, how much memory do you have? Because this can go on for a really long time. Now this is where we say pragmatic things, like... Well, in reality, it's all, you know, we have a system. We know that between you and I, we exchange like one message per second. So you think, well, what's, what's, how much memory do I really need to remember this stuff from the end? Oh, okay, I'm going to need the last 10 statements. So you sort of make, make sure you have memory for the 10 hashes of the last 10 sentences, and that's good enough for you. And the, the key thing is to measure the system, right, and know how much is going through it. Um, and then you can tune these deduplicating strategies and, and you can keep things in check. But it's all a, it's, it's a probability game. At some point, something's going to go wrong. When, if you phone me and say, um, hey, I got your payment, then that's like at most once because you hang up, you haven't heard an acknowledgement from me. Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Then if you, if you um, wait for me to acknowledge mm -hmm. back, then we have this problem where that's at least once because maybe the, the line comes out yes. while I'm telling that's you, exactly so then it. you have to re-deliver. Yes. So I get it twice. So then, I mean, I think what everybody really wants is exactly once. I know, I want that too. I'd, I'd, I'd also like a, a wristwatch with a fountain. Never going to happen. <laughs> so is exactly once possible? Um, okay, uh, yes, in if you reduce the context, so if you remove a lot of I.O., or if you are prepared to say, to trade off something else, so you think, I want exactly once. Okay, 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 that's fine. Which now means that you need to say, I need an extra coordinator. And this extra service, extra coordinator, can now tell me, have I seen this message? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, I've already seen this message, then okay, reject it, don't even attempt to deliver it. And that's okay, but you've sacrificed availability. And if this coordinator goes down, your system has to say, well, no, I'm, I'm no longer sending anything. Um, so it is a trade-off. Throughout this thing, it's a, it's a trade-off. So the, the, um, in, in the phone uh, example, I guess, like if, if we had some third person who tracked whether, like we both acknowledged to the third party, is that the idea? That's the idea. You'd, you'd have something else that listens and says, yeah, no, that, that, one, that one can go through, that one can go through. So let's, let's rewind. Um, you said earlier that, um, I think that you said, like one of the main reasons for, for wanting a distributed system was deployment. Um, it seems like a small reason to me um, just to want to deploy components separately. Um, is that the only reason? Well, so, okay, so the, the second, the big reason, the, the favorite reason is we say scale. That's the kicker, right? And we always imagine the system that goes, you know what, I, I'll, be, I'll be Amazon. This will be so cool. I will 100,000 requests per second, maybe even. And then you say, okay, well, it's unreasonable for, the, for a monolithic application to be able to handle 100,000 requests per second when the distribution of work is actually... 90,000 of browsing, people just look for stuff, and only 10,000 is people buying. I think I've made those numbers up. I think if that's the case, then, you know, Mr. Bezos is <laughs> the happiest man on earth. If you get like 90, 10, 9 to 1 browsing to actually buying, oh, wow, that would probably be pretty good. So I, I think the numbers are different, but it doesn't matter. So, yes, it's, it's scale. And, of course, if the system is divided into different services, each service can be scaled differently. What's actually even more um, encouraging about it is that when services, when the system is broken up into services, we can now really think about failure scenarios and what do we do if something is broken. So again, hypothetical e-commerce website. Let's say that the e-commerce website is really keen that people get whatever goes into a shopping basket, people have to be able to get, right? We're just going to believe them. So if I put stuff in my shopping basket and browse, so that's one set of microservices that have the search and the image delivery and all that personalization, 
uh, all my shopping basket and I go to the payment stage and the payment mm-hmm. service goes down. Now, one of the options that we have, which would be sort of silly in this particular example, but nevertheless reasonable to think about it, let's say we're really good and we say we want our customers to be super happy. They've spent all this time putting their stuff in the shopping basket. Regardless of whether the payment service works or not, we're going to send the stuff. And so if I make a... See, the, now, okay, I know silly, right? But you make a request to this payment service and you say, hey, I, I want to now pay for this... You know, I put a few DVDs in my in my DVDs. <laughs> I don't even have a yeah. DVD drive. But you know, years ago, right? I put a couple of DVDs in my shopping basket and I paid for it. I clicked checkout, checkout. The service that ran the website made a made a request to the payment service that was down. And so it said, never mind, let's just deliver this stuff. Yeah. Ridiculous, you say. Of course it's think though uh I don't know, maybe you're subscribing to music, online music. You go to Spotify. I've actually heard of an example. So uh, Starbucks, they have their uh, member. It's like a gift card or whatever, but it's also their their membership card, right? And you can put coffees on it. So I guess uh, they have problems with their system going down. And when down, they just give free coffees. Like Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, you can extend it to, say, a music service. So suppose you want to listen to something. Open, open your phone. You say, I'm going to subscribe. I'm going to subscribe using Apple Pay. And so the payment has gone through the Apple systems and then the, the receipt gets sent to this music service and it says, hey guys, so I have a receipt number 47 from Apple and the music service now says, okay, well, I'm going to go to Apple and just double check really that if the receipt number 47 has that been paid. Apple service goes 503 over capacity. Now, at that point, it's really reasonable for the music service to say, Ah, never mind. I'm going to let the user listen to stuff for the next 15 minutes. I'm going to hand out uh, the, you know, the, the authentication token that allows access to all this music. But 15 minutes later, the user has to check back because by then I will have checked for sure with Apple and I will know. So this right. is actually a really reasonable thing to do. Now, again, it, it sort of makes, I guess, the, the commercial people's blood go, go stone cold, right? But what's the alternative? If we didn't do this, I mean, the alternative would have been really annoyed customers. They would have used something, everything would have worked on their side, and just because one of our services is down, they don't get to do what they want it to do. So they pick up the phone or write a tweet. It's actually better, in a lot of cases, to just trust people and maybe allow them access for a short duration of time. Again, the industry and all that, you know, generalizing overly, overly generalized even. But with distributed system, this is now possible. You know, if you were in a monolith, if the payment service went down because it's part of the monolith, that's it, you're down. Nothing works. If it's a distributed system, you have a better chance of defining some sort of failure strategy. And because the payment system publishes events about what happened to it, you as developers, you now have a chance of going through what happened and going, oh, this sort of sequence of events might lead to a failure, which you could use to improve your code, or maybe you can write some sort of predictive mechanism that tells the operations team or tells whoever happens to be on, on pager duty that says, look, heads up, mm-hmm. this this is not going to be pretty. It's it's we're still fine, but something's coming. And that is fantastic. That that is the one thing that that keeps the services running, keeps the entire systems running. It's interesting because it brings to mind to me, like even even if you have a monolithic app, um, likely you already have a distributed system, right? Because you're calling out to some payment processor, mm-hmm. you're calling out to some database. Um, so it's, even though there your you application go. is 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 fully formed, right? You're not. You're, I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that you need to model these 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 systems and what will happen when you can't reach them. Like you know, we I just always assume I can reach the database. If I can't, you know, whatever. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the worst thing about it is that at small scale, I don't, I don't mean it in, in, in a bad way, but at low scale, it's quite possible to go to AWS and provision a MySQL instance, and that thing will run forever. Mm-hmm. It'll never fail. Right? And, and because it's just one computer, but as the number of computers increases, the chance of probability goes, I mean, the, the chance of failure goes right up. 
something is going to fail. Now, this was, I kept, I, I used to say this. I used to say, oh, well, we need to build these distributed systems and we need to treat failures as first class citizens. This is really important. And I, I said that out loud and by, you know, at the back of my mind, I thought, yeah, but, but come on, like, <laughs> when does that happen? Well, we now happen to have a system that handles significant load and it happens every day. Every day, some service goes down. Uh, you know, a couple of nodes of a database go down, a couple of Kafka brokers go down, they get restarted and it's fine, right? And the key thing is because we can reason about this, this failure and because we're prepared for it, it's fine. We survive it. Our infrastructure keeps running. Our application keeps running. The, the users are getting their responses. Uh, but internally, of course, we can, you know, detect errors and recover from them. Um, so that, that was very, that was an eye-opener, truly. <laughs> what do you think uh, about this argument? I, I haven't heard it in a while, but it was very popular about, um, you know, build the monolith huh. first. And then, you know, once you reach some, you know, once you reach these, these problems, then, you know, then you start splitting. I, mean, I don't have a general answer to that. Uh, I think a lot of the times you can know what the expected load is going to be. If you know, as in you have an existing customer base and you know that you have a million customers. And so the new service, when it goes live, it will get that load. Now, I think it would be silly in that scenario to say, no, 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 we're just going to start with this thing that we know isn't right. <laughs> um, and then we'll see how it goes, how it crashes. Like, feel free to say it's a horrible idea. Uh, so it it came, um, I think it was Martin Fowler who wrote about this, you know, probably several years ago. And I think his argument was, if you try to build this new application as a distributed system, um, but once it starts interacting with customers, your requirements start changing drastically. And if you don't know where these, um, if you don't know where the change is going to be, like maybe you've cut things up in a way that doesn't make sense. And that, and that's, that was going to be my follow on. If it's a new application, if this is just a, dare I say a startup, then it makes total sense to experiment first. But that there was another, I think that this was Googlers who wrote it. And it goes along the lines of design, take a system and say, you say, okay, I need to be able to handle mm-hmm. 10 concurrent users. Um, design it for a hundred. But once you get to a thousand, it's a new system. And once you get to 10x the original design, it's, it's just not going to work. So, okay, I know 10 is a silly example, but design, say you have a hundred thousand users, design a system that will hold up to say a million. But once your usage grows up to be 10 million, the thing isn't suitable. It's, it's the wrong thing. Now, I think this is where Martin Fowler was, was getting as well. The design choices for something that handles 10 or 100 uses might be completely different to the thing that handles 1,000. And if the starting position is that you have zero users, <laughs> well, wow, you're right. You know, design something, anything. Because as you point out, who knows what these silly users will say when they finally log in and say, well, I don't like this. And you might cut your system up the wrong way. You, know, you might... Um, define these consistency boundaries. That's, that's, that's a big word. I haven't come up with a big word for a long time. So consistency boundary, or you know, this, this context boundary, because we're in a distributed system, um, we have, I'm sure people know, heard about this cap theory, um, which says, okay, well, you have consistency, availability, or partition tolerance. You'd like all three, but if you could only have two. And as long as one of them is partition tolerance, because you have a distributed system, right? So partition tolerance, now pick two, consistency or availability. And it really depends on what you're building. Now, the choice isn't usually quite, it's not binary. It's not like consistency one, zero. There's a a scale. But what you're ultimately dealing with is physics, right? You have a data center, say there's a data center in Dublin, and there's a data center in, you know, East Coast, US East Amazon, and EU West in Dublin. It takes time for, for this electricity nonsense to get from 
America to Ireland. It just does, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so if you write a thing to a system like a database in Dublin, it's going to take like 100 milliseconds before the signal gets to US East, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just life. So what can you do? You can say, well, so if someone else is reading the same row from, uh, you know, US East, they'll, they'll see old data because it's just not there yet. So you can say, oh, okay, 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 okay. So you hate the idea, absolutely hate the idea. It must be consistent. When I look at my, this database row, I must see wherever I look in the world, I must see the same value. All right. So you better have this other component, this, this coordinating guy that like adds a tick and says, yes, no, this is now every, everyone from I've heard acts from every data center, every replica that they now have it. And, and now it's good. Now people, now I can release these read locks that people are waiting for. Okay. It's consistent. What if one of these networks connection, what if this, this coordinating component goes down? Well, there you go. There, it's, you can't be consistent. So the only thing that the system can do is no, bye-bye, no service. I think even, even in um, monolithic applications, I think people don't think about the fact that maybe you're consistent within the database, but, but that doesn't necessarily, like, I imagine a scenario you have a bunch of app servers and uh-huh. a database behind it, like Postgres and, you know, everything's yep. acid, but, you know, one user reads a record and it displays it somewhere and then they change some things. And then, you know, your little magic ORM software saves the record, mm-hmm. um, like on mass back, right. And somebody else could have the same record up, um, at the same yep. time. Um, so the consistency is lost. Sometimes people don't even realize it, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So the more you distribute the system, the more you have to deal with these scenarios, the more you have to deal with the possibility that something will be inconsistent. And it can actually be a really... I've had a whole bunch of discussions with typically e-commerce people who find it like absurd. What do you mean that I don't know how much stuff I have in stock? <laughs> well, you, you do roughly, but it's not down to like one unit. So they say, oh, no, no, how, how about we reserve items? Okay, you can. How about we lock items? Yes, you can. But as the number of users grows, the, the number of locks or these reservations grows. And so it's really easy to get to the point where everything is locked and no one can actually do anything because you want to be consistent. Because you want to be consistent, you've sacrificed availability. And so, you know, people say, no, 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 you, you, you can't have that. I want to be consistent and available. Mm-hmm. Which point you say, okay, fine, buy one big, huge machine and run everything on this one machine. But even that's ridiculous. That machine will have multiple CPUs. It will have like wires going through it and they will break. <laughs> so it's, it's a... And the availability is lost if that machine goes down. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's not pretty. So you had a... You had an example about uh, an image processing system you designed. Um, I did, yes. I'm wondering if you could if you could describe that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So this was this was a really interesting um, interesting thing. Now, these people are now a little bit more worried about their private information, but nevertheless, this was in a good old days where people uploaded pictures of their passports freely onto any old service they could find. Now, what we did is it was. Uh, obviously doing a couple of processing steps with these identity documents. So what, what, was, the, the, what was the goal of the system? It was to um, essentially provide biometric verification of the user. So uh, think you want to open a bank account and you don't want to go to the branch and the bank doesn't really want to open a branch for you because it costs a lot of money. What they would like to do instead is to have the users use their phones to you know, look into their phones and take a picture of their driving license or something. And for this system, say, yeah, no, this is looking good. The driving license is the real deal. It's not being tampered with. And the thing that's staring into the camera, that's the same face. And it's, it's alive. <laughs> um, so, so, so that was that. Now, of course, the users, the, they, they want this thing to run beautifully smoothly, right? And, they will give you 10 seconds of attention, maybe. So if the processing really isn't done within 
say 10 seconds, maybe 15, if we, if we invent some clever animation, then this would have been a total failure. So this needed to be obviously scalable. It needed to be parallel. It needed to be concurrent. All Many of these steps needed to be executed concurrently. And uh, a lot of these steps were actually pretty difficult. As you can imagine, there was a whole bunch of, there is a whole bunch of machine learning involved. Um, and so what the PDF that you might have read or the, the, the preview book that you might have, that you might have read essentially describes the thing that there's a front service that ingests uh, a couple of images, as in high-resolution pictures of documents or whatever else, and it ingests a video of the person staring into the phone, and then the downstream services then compute the results. So you know, it needs to be OCR'd. Uh, the face needs to be extracted from it. We need to check that uh, you, you haven't just stuck a, another picture on you, you know. We used to do this. I, I didn't because um, for Eastern Europe, so we used to drink like all the time. But I keep hearing that people elsewhere in the world had to fake their driving <laughs> licenses in order to prove that they, they are allowed to have a drink. And so they take someone else's driving license, put a picture on, put their picture on it. So we need to be able to detect those scenarios, obviously. And then combine the result, right? And then at the end, there is a state machine that reacts to all these messages that are coming from these upstream components. And as soon as it's ready, it needs to emit a result. So imagine that uh, I don't know, you're the bank, right? You want to open a, a bank account and you say, you know, question, I said, how much, how much more? Maybe you're a betting company or someone who needs to verify identity of a person. And so, so if I'm a betting company and I say, okay, you know what? I'm going to play on the uh, Grand National, which is a UK horse race. Okay, uh, you need, I know I've never bet before, right? So I need to register, I need to prove that I'm over 18. So I go through this process. And then in the app, I say, how much do you want to bet? And I say, I'll splash out, I'm going to bet two pounds. Well, right? So the betting company then can have a ruling that says, as soon as I hear from this system, as soon as it emits a message that says, look, you know what, we've OCR'd it, and this driving license looks like a UK driving license. At that point, it mm. might say, that's good enough. It's fine. Allow that to go through. If, on the other hand, I was saying, well, look, I'm going to bet 3,000 pounds, they might actually need to wait for all these messages to arrive. That is to say, it's OCR'd, and we checked the... Um, the you know driving license register to verify that it's the real thing, and we also compared the picture on the driving license with the with the face that was staring into the phone. And yes, it's the right person. Now that is only possible if your system emits these messages. It, it was it would have been impossible to condense down into start processing and then wait until we have everything. We have this entire processing flow um, and then send one callback, one result to the gambling company. That makes sense. Cause if we were if we were doing back to our startup generating something quick, uh, you know, I might have some web server that kind of throws these images into whatever a Kafka topic and then just something else that just does everything, right? Pulls it out and and goes through it. So you're saying the problem with that is the upstream consumer needs to know about specific, or it wants to know before it's done, I guess. It, it, yes, and your the main the main challenge is that you don't know what it wants to know, and like until you deploy the first cut of this, and until you say to to your customers, look here, here is what we can do. Um, you, you don't get the feedback, and what they might say is, well, that's nice, but. Couldn't you just send us, you know, I am a gambling company A, couldn't you just send us, like, the, the, the initial processing, that's good enough for us. So, oh, yeah, okay, fine. So <laughs> if client equals equals five, then do this. And then some other client comes along and says, well, you see, uh, but, 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 but if the betting amount is more than 200, then we will end. That way lies pain. So it's much better to just, Emit everything that you know as soon as you know it from your services. Now, if you, if we do implementing this system and we decide together that we're going to be so good to our customers that we're going to implement this workflow engine, 
we can as a separate service. But as a separate service, that's the kicker. So we can defer that decision. Um, Absolutely. So how does the client... Okay, there's... Uh, the client is a confusing term here. So there's, there's a user with a phone, but then uh-huh. there's your actual client, like the bank. Right. Um, so how are they, how are they consuming these uh, results? Now, uh, there are sort of multiple choices. Uh, the most, the crudest one is we just push stuff to them over, over a connection, right? So we say to, to the, our clients, so speaks of the system that should receive the messages from us. We say, okay, guys, why don't you stand up a publicly accessible HTTP endpoint and we're going to post stuff to you? That's a horrible way of doing it. Don't ever do that. <laughs> and first of all, your customers will hate it because they'll say, well, no, we, like, come on. We're, like, we don't want to stand up a web server in order to consume your service. That's a stupid idea, firstly. And secondly, the, it pushes the responsibility of making sure that you're talking to the right endpoint back at your service. It would be really bad if, say, you had this complicated image processing service and if it posted data, private data, mm. biometric data, to some other URL. Yeah. Through misconfiguration. So, yeah, horrible. <laughs> so, how about we do it like Twitter used to? So, we say, okay, you know, it's the client, open a long post um, request and like a connection, and we will send you chunks, HTTP chunks of messages as soon as we receive something. Mm. Now, that's a much nicer way of doing it um, because it just allows the client to control where it's connecting to. It also means that the client has to check the HTTP, the, you know, the, the certificate on the connection. It has to know and it has to be sure that it's talking to the right service. So you know, we can wash our hands off this whole horrible business. And it also means that, you know, the client now is in control of its consumption. Now that's kind of that's kind of nice. Um, what's slightly problematic about it is the scale of it. So if it's the case of like one image per second, oh yeah. If it were oh I don't know a thousand images per second, that's a bit that's a bit tougher, right? You would want multiple of these connections to be opened. And so now we need to think about a way to partition which connection gets which results in which images and you know they need to be rooted more carefully and you also need to think about well you need to be nice to your clients and say we understand that the connection might mm-hmm. go down and you might have to make a new connection okay but you need to be able to say things like i'm making a connection but i want to start consuming from record number 75 instead of the last one so but that can be you know the thing query mm-hmm. parameter um, so, so, so that's a neat way of really bridging the gap between someone who says, so we're Scala and, and JVMs and Kafka. And, you know, our Mr. Client says, no, I'm .NET. Like, none of this stuff. Don't talk mm-hmm. to me. In which case, this sort of long HTTP chunk connection works, works pretty well. Uh, of course, ideal, like, ideal scenario is the client say, well, we would like to, uh, for, your system to expose another Kafka-like interface, and we can just mirror that. Um, so that's that's one of the other options that that we offer. Now, in the end, in this particular system, we ended up just with these HTTP endpoints. So that's something you do. You do integration o- with Kafka, like as your. We we offered that uh, because there was a particular deployment that looked like it was going to be large enough to warrant that, um, but in the end, we dropped it. Interesting. I can see why it would be easy from your side. Oh yeah, exactly. That's why we said, "Oh no, no, we can we can do this for you." But it, I didn't like it in the end because it exposed too much of our internal workings. It it felt like integration through database wasn't mm-hmm, quite yeah. right. Um, now, okay, you can restrict the uh, the topics that are replicated. You can maybe transform them, but it still still felt a little bit crummy. Um, so. I think it's much better to have really sharp, completely disconnected interface. Um, and even if you're talking, say, say you're running AWS and uh, you publish your messages to Kinesis, and then you would say to your client, oh, yes, I see you have Kinesis. Why don't we you know, push stuff to your Kinesis? 
again, it feels like you, you're letting your dirty laundry out for everyone to see. Um, so there should be an integration service that it might well consume from Kinesis, mm-hmm. do some cleanup, and publish to another Kinesis. That, that's all good, right? And it might even be a Lambda for all I care. But it shouldn't be a direct connection. So that that's interfacing with the with the externally. So in inside of your your microservices world, uh, like how how do you draw these? Um, how do you how do you agree on these formats? Formats being the, the message bus or the yeah. How the, how do you agree on how you communicate with between the various microservices? So a lot of it is driven by the by the environment. So we have one one system that lit, that's divided and. Part of it lives in a data center, and part of it lives in AWS. Now that drives the the choice because there is no cases in a data center. We had to use Kafka in that particular case, um, and then we publish messages out to cases, uh, and the AWS components consume cases. What's actually more important is to think about the properties of this messaging thing and to think about the payload that goes on this thing. So in a distributed system, I think one of the super evil things to have is ephemeral messages. So if the integration between our components, our services is like an HTTP request, there is just there's no way to get back to it. If once the request is made, it's made, it's gone. There's no way, no record of it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So what we really prefer is persistent messaging. And you can think of, you can then think of these message brokers as both messaging delivery mechanism as well as journal in the CQRS um, event sourced sense. So the message box contains all messages for a duration of time. But, but they're not lost. So if I publish a message to Kinesis, if I publish a message to Kafka, once <clears throat> the publisher gets the confirmation that, yes, okay, the sufficient number of nodes of Kinesis or Kafka have the record, it's, it's there, right? It sits somewhere. It can be reread again. It's persistent. Now, actually, terms and conditions apply. <laughs> That's not exactly what's happening with Kafka because what happens is if you, by default, if you have a cluster of like n number of nodes, and if you say I want to receive a confirmation when the record is published on you know quorum number of nodes, okay, that still doesn't mean that the message is written to a disk. It just means that the quorum number of nodes have the message in memory. Now, it's you know probabilities game. You'd have to be really unlucky that all of these nodes would fail before they would flush mm. their memory to disk. Um, of course, you can say, no, 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 it needs to be F-synced, but then the message rate goes right down because now it needs to be F-synced. Um, we have a distributed file system, right? So so part of the components is running in OpenShift, which is GlusterFS, which is a distributed network file system painted over a number of SSDs. And so we have a cluster of Kafkas that use this GlusterFS, which we're not entirely happy about, but we're not also entirely unhappy about because it runs. Uh, but hey, right? Uh, this is confusing. It, it wouldn't be fun to wear a So uh, just to make sure that, that uh, I'm understanding. So we, you know, we're going to, your image, your image service has a bunch of microservices inside of it. Um, and they are mm-hmm. communicating with each other using Kafka topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we kind of, you know, That's we kind of it. assume that that is persistent, even if some conditions apply. Yes. Um, so how do you organize it in terms of like message schemas and topics? That's a good question. So the messages we've chosen, uh, first call buffers as the format description of our messages. So we're very, very, very strict about it. And we actually have, I think this is where people are going to get really angry because one of, the, one of the things about microservices mm. is that they are independent. Each microservice is its own world. It shouldn't have any shared code and shared dependencies. Well, I mean, true, but then reality kicks in. Now, what we've done, so where people will get angry, we actually created one separate GitHub repository that contains our protocol definitions. 
for all the services. Now, this is like, it's really kind of weird, but it, this one thing allows us humans to spot when someone is making a change in the protocol. So if there's a pull request to this one central repository that contains all the protocol definitions for the services, the entire team is on it and it goes, ooh, wait a minute. If we merge this, is it going to break any of our stuff? Because remember, these microservices have independent lifecycle. And so it's quite possible to have like version 1.2.3 of service A running alongside version 1.4.7 of version of service B. And following the usual semantic versioning rules, these should be compatible. Well, except semantic versioning is only as good as the programmers who make it. And so this is why we have this shared repository and we have humans entire team sort of eyeball it and say, is this going to work? Yes or no. And when we build the microservices, um, they all build protocol implementations using this, this shared definitions repository. So if there's a C++ version, it makes the, you know, proto C's its own C++ uh, versions of the protocols. If there's a Scala version, it's Scala code. Um, but then it's all quote unquote guarantees to work together when, when it's deployed. Is there, is protobuf the, the best solution or what do you think of? Ah, now to me, the best solution is language that has good language tooling. And so you could say, you can, you can say, oh, well, we should have used Avro. Surely Avro is more, more efficient. It has support in Kafka and all that. Maybe we would have, we should have used Thrift or something else. But when we were developing the system, uh, Protobuf had really mature tooling for the languages that we used. So there was tooling for Swift and Objective-C for the, for the clients. There was good tooling for, uh, for C++, and there was good tooling for Scala, and that, that made the, the difference. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is you're free to choose which of a protocol you like, protocol language, protocol definition language, as long as the tooling matches your development lifecycle, and as long as the protocol is rich enough to allow you to express all the messages that you're sending. That makes down sense. These so wires. how how do you what how do you decide about topics? Um, like, do you have each is is each microservice pushing to a, a singular topic or what? I'm, each yes, so that, that that's a good question. Typically, each microservice is pushing to multiple topics. Um, it might so so there is the the basic results topic but in you know it might have partial results it might have some statistics so these are definitely topics that um you know we i can't say that one service only ever consumes from one topic and publishes to one topic uh, a typical service in, in, in that particular system will consume from two topics and publish to maybe three um it is worth mentioning though with particularly with versioning is the way we've gone about it is we have topics for major versions. So there's like a V1 of images. And if, and, you know, obviously V1 will be forwards and backwards compatible in, in across all the major versions within the, the, wait a minute, minor versions within the one major version. And if we ever decide to deploy, you know, mm. image service V2, which presumably is completely different, right? Because it's just not compatible. Then we would create mm -hmm. a like image dash v two topic for it. I mean, it seems to be a theme you're saying is to to make these things explicit. Uh -huh. Absolutely right. You, you have to be able to talk about these things and and accept reality, right? What's always scares me the most is when people describe the system and they say we will break on a monolith or we we are designing a microservices based architecture. And we're going to have this component talk to this component. And when it returns the response, we're going to do this, that, and the other. My first question in all those scenarios is, what if it's down? What if it's not available? And, <laughs> okay, so, so this is very esoteric. esoteric but let's go back to our user database. You can build a user database. And you have a login page. Mm -hmm. And you have like an e-commerce music shop or something. And... My question to you would be, okay, what do you do when your user database is down and someone wants to log in? Freak out. 
get pages. All right, there you go. <laughs> now, a lot of people will say, well, what can we possibly do? Like the database is down, but the, what you can do, of course, option A is deny, you can't log in. Option B is, okay, fine, you're logged in. I, I don't care what username and password you typed in. You're logged in. We'll take your word for it. We're going to issue you a token that's good for the next two minutes. Mm. How about that? And and it's this thing, right? And then you say it to your product team and they say, are you ridiculous? What? We can't allow that to happen. And then you say, okay, fine, fine, fine. I hear you. So option B is, if the database goes down, and it will go down, then your service is down. Well, we don't like, we hate that as well. <laughs> and, and, we, and we do. I know. I, I, I hate the database going down, and I'm sure that product owners hate the idea of just letting people in. But we have to make a choice. That's that's reality. It makes sense. Yeah, for a music service. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, for a bank, you know, I think that... <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where consistency, this is where the dials go in, right? It's not a one or zero. So, of course, if I can't verify my online banking identity, I can't let you in. What if, though, let's say there, there are a number of banks in the UK. One is actually, one of them had a massive IT failure last week. Um, anyway, 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 besides that, well, suppose you're, you're running a bank and you have you know, 2005 called and you're doing um, a two-factor authentication by text messages. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was able to log in my you know, username and password or whatever third digit of your security code was fine, but the SMS sending service is down. And now it's a reasonable choice. Maybe a possibly reasonable choice is to allow re-only access. Mm, makes sense. Or because then the SMS is just not, uh, not do two-factor. That could be a choice you could make. No. Absolutely. Interesting. So it has to be, you have to think about it. Actually, designing these systems, systems. This is the this is the picture, right? Systems that are made up of these multiple components. As we design them, we always say, "What if it's not there? What if it's unreliable? What if it's slow?" And not treat it as a either an academic discussion, as in, "What if? What if you know the data center is offline? What can?" No, no, no. I, I mean these mundane, boring things, failures mm-hmm. that happen all the time. Okay. Well, uh, someone dropped a table. The, the database isn't accessible. My SMS sending service is down. The email SMTP server is down. And they happen all the time. And so that's the first layer of digging. And the answer shouldn't be, oh, well, it, there has to be something. There has to be a decision. And it, it's the implicit, oh, well, that causes the most problems. Oh, well, it could be a decision, I, I guess. Or, or I mean, I guess it's implied. You're saying we need an explicit decision to say. We That's exactly it. Never be. We assume that. And it's, it's, it, takes so, it takes so much of mental practice because we are used to things. And, you know, we program, right? We say, I don't know, select star from user. And if like, TCP connection denied, then... Most most people, me myself included, will say, well, <laughs> yeah. "What do you want, to do, right?" Like seriously, what do you want? But if we don't say it out loud, if we don't say that if the database isn't there, I'm not doing anything, then other people won't know that we have made this decision. It's this hidden decision, and that's going to come back and bite and us. I assume also the the cutting things up this way um, into microservices allows us to be kind of more explicit about about various parts failing while others remain like in a monolith you know it's it's hard to make these yes the the absolutely yeah, the, the lines aren't clear i guess between yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely it's you know people want we we want it right i mean you go on netflix and you watch stuff and you're just like no, you expect it to happen because after all you paid ten dollars and come on you know i want the world-class service i want files to be ready on CDNs, ready for me to start watching within a second mm. of pressing play. Because, <laughs> come on, I paid my $10. You know, we, we are guilty of that expectation. And so I find it bizarre that we would then be at work and, and say things like, no, no, well, you know, it's nothing we can do, and we're building a system for a bank or a, for a retailer or for something that actually gets more money than, you know, the $10 per month on Netflix. 
So Jan, you're you're the CTO of of Cake Solutions. Um, what's that like? It doesn't it doesn't sound uh, to me like you're doing CTO things. It sounds like you're uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding. You're in the weeds of designing distributed systems, or yeah, well, quite. I mean, I, I guess I would hate the idea of not understanding what my team what my teams are doing. That that just that frightens me. Um, and you know, same goes for non-coding architects and, and that sort of thing. I think to actually make a useful decision, um, one really has to know what's involved. And these, these are, I think these are complicated decisions. Um, and so it would really annoy me if I, if I didn't know, if I didn't understand, and if I had to go to meetings where I would hear things that people talk about, and I just sat <laughs> there and thought, hmm, well, I didn't talk Sounds complicated. I suppose they're right. That that would really frighten me. Um, so I, I think it's actually super important for the for techies to be, um, you know, meeting big teams and big companies. I, I think that was actually it was an interesting article I read, I read a while ago that said that mm. said that I think it was Joe Spolsky, in fact, that talked about his time at Microsoft. He said. That Bill Gates, you know, the back then CEO, what do you CEO? I don't know, see something, chief, very important person. Um, yeah, he said he would dig into technical details. He says he remembers the time when Bill Gates was insisting that there is a reusable rich text editor component. Now, that can only come from really understanding what the hell's going on in, in technology. Without it, right? How would a, a CTO code? How would a CTO who doesn't understand any of this insist on having a reusable rich text component? So, yeah, that's my take on it. Anyway, I, I mean, I think it's great. I, I think that uh, that all CTOs should uh, take that on. I think, I guess, people just get buried by by the the you know the ins and outs of the of the job, and sometimes. And that's fair, you know. It's fair, and it, it's tempting to say to. to achieve the optimum meeting density as, as Wally says in two <laughs> you know it's tempting but no resist honestly if, if anyone's listening don't do it it's, it's horrible be interested there's like there is so much interesting stuff going on and even that, that goes down to, to teams that are implementing some of these microservices some of the stuff is, is on the outside boring oh goodness it's boring <laughs> like who makes a who would like to make a PDF report? Really? You know, Jasper reports, and off we go. Ugh. But what I'm always reminded of is, again, I'm terrible with names, no idea who said this, but mm. when one looks closely enough, everything is interesting. And I think that's really the case. Like, even PDF reports can be made more interesting. I mean, in the darkest of days, we used all of bloody transformers to make PDF reports. So the PDF report thing is still boring. But we could use this other stuff, which was really interesting. And I, I guess my point is, you know, this is the time to be alive. This is, we can do, there's so much technology available to us that I, I really don't think that anything can be boring. Well, that's, that's a great uh, sentiment. Do you want to uh, say a little bit about Cake Solutions before we wrap up? Well, sure. So um, I am sure you've heard the, the, what, what we used to do. So we used to do these, and we still make distributed systems, but of course, about a year ago, we were working for, uh, for our clients. And then uh, about a year ago, we, we were acquired by Bantech. And Bantech were subsequently acquired by Disney. And so we now uh. make distributed systems. It's the same stuff, right? Uh-huh. But we never concentrate on media delivery. So if any, any, anyone is a sports fan, and if you guys are watching ESPN Plus, awesome. there you go. That's the stuff. Um, those, those are the distributed systems. Um, we're gonna, I, I can't tell you, but there's, in 2019, there will be a thing that, that will just be the best thing in existence, like sliced bread nothing. Wow, it sounds exciting. I can understand uh, where you're coming out from scale then if you're working on ESPN. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. This was the volume of media. And, and I was trying to be completely specific about, about what we do. 
But you can tell how delivering that sort of experience is super important. It's super important for these systems to deliver content to our users. Now, I remember back in the days when we were making these quote-unquote ordinary distributed systems for, you know, banks and mm-hmm. e-commerce. Well, you know, if, if an e-commerce app is, is not available, it's annoying. Yeah. You know, we, we can get on <laughs> in our days. Imagine, though, there's a game, there's a, like a baseball game. You're a fan. You oh. really want to see this. Right. And 500. <laughs> no. No, well, first of all, it's live. So, like, it's, it's, it cannot happen. You cannot have 500 because where it's in e-commerce, the users were annoyed if the thing went down. Mm-hmm. Now they're angry, but <laughs> deeply angry. So, you know, that, that was, uh, that was quite an eye opener. But, but having this, this distributed system comprised, uh, you know, of these microservices allowed us to think about what will happen. What do we do if something breaks? What are the miti- what, mm-hmm. what's the mitigation? Because ultimately the motivation is to deliver content. You know, our, our users have paid for this and they're fans. This is, this is their passion. They want to see this video. So there you have it. Awesome. Uh, so thanks so much for your time, Jan. It's been great. Well, it was, it was an absolute pleasure. 